yeah, let's get into our nominees. So, not nominees, our top 10. So, uh, how should we do this? Do you want to go first and then I'll do mine? Yes. So we'll go one by one. All right. What's your number 10? Glass Onion. That is my number five. Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend. Who's that? Benoit Blanc, the detective? Mr. Blanc, I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here. When's the murder mystery start? Wow. Oh, no, not number five. No, no. No, number... N oh, crap. Which one did I have it at? Hold on. Let me double check. <laughs> it was number seven. Sorry. Well, okay. So my saw, number seven, your number 10. Yes. When we saw Glass Onion, I said to you, it's so nice sometimes to be expertly manipulated by a director. <laughs> because this movie is manipulative in the absolute best sense of the word. Like when you, I... You mean like, well, <laughs> you know, again, Hitchcock, like would say. Ryan Johnson was in total control of me from the beginning of this movie to the end. Yes. I know... I was experiencing exactly what he wanted me to experience every step of the way. And I know their movies can be manipulative in a bad way, but when you're in the hand of someone who is that talented and they're manipulating you in a good way. So I just thought yes. much, I think the opening scene of this movie is where you see all the main characters unfolding mm -hmm. the puzzle box. It's a great metaphor for what you, the audience, will experience. Because basically, this movie is just an incredibly well-executed puzzle box. Exactly. With really charismatic actors playing delightfully awful characters, a great plot. It's just, it's just fun. It's just a good time at the movies. Yeah. And what I love in that opening sequence is, you know, yeah, you get introduced to uh, our kind of main you know, invitees for this big uh, get gathering that Edward Norton's character is holding. You know, you meet Kate Hudson, who is, you know, like super ditzy, self-involved woman. You have Dave Bautista. You have, um, who are some of the other ones? Oh, God, I came. Wasn't there like, there was a black guy, right? Yes. Oh, God. And then I thought there was a – well, then, of course, Benoit Blanc or good Daniel Craig. But, yeah, it's just you immediately – Ryan Johnson just has this expert way of immediately getting you to know who these characters are, where their egos are at, which is like there's no ceiling. Um, and it's just very funny. Right away, if you don't like those first five minutes of the movie, then you shouldn't watch it. And I don't know – What's wrong with you? Why you don't like it? Because it's very entertaining. And what I just what I love about this movie is that it, it it genuinely surprises you. Like you think you're watching the movie and it's going on and on. It gets to the halfway point and suddenly it does this reveal that should be like, wait, didn't this used to be like an old trope in like old mystery stories? And that's what's great about it. Like, he embraces doing, like, the surprise reveal, and it's like a reveal within a reveal that, like, this character that you think you know, and it's, we could, I don't know if we can get in the, should we get in the minor spoilers? Go for it. Spoilers. Yeah. Janelle Monet 
her character, she you think she's like the one character among this bunch that's invited by Edward Norton who has been on the outs and she's very like standoffish and prickly and you wonder like is she gonna be the killer and then suddenly like halfway through the movie it jumps back to how Benoit Blanc really got involved with this whole whole shenanigans and it's just brilliant like the way that she like she's asked to really play a second character and it's like still very funny it's still like it, it suddenly reveals to you oh wait so this was happening here oh she really likes her liquor in this moment and and ultimately too it's just i love that you can have you can relate the the social commentary with edward norton's character and i'm not you know we're not the first one to point this out but you know elon musk but it's just a wonderful comment about the you know these rich bastards are secretly not that bright. Yeah. Just because they have a lot of ingenuity and good lawyers and like maybe slightly savantish, like business savvy, you know, they're really morons. <laughs> and yeah, it's expert manipulation. You put it like very well because you're played so like a fiddle and he gets you then to that climax and it's, it's just such like a crowd pleasing like finale. So good, I loved it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Knives Out was my number ten movie in 2019. So huh. Ryan Johnson's got the spot on lockdown. Yeah, and Knives Out was. I don't know if that was in my top five in 2019, but it was certainly you know somewhere in there for me too. So I like this even more than Knives Out, Glass Onion. I think I do too. I, I mean, I would want to revisit both, but I think I would revisit Glass Onion first. Um by the way, and the Armist, uh, Knives Out. Um so what so now my number 10 is Fire of Love. They will leave behind hundreds of hours of footage, thousands of photos and a million questions. Alone, they could only dream of volcanoes. Together, they can reach them. This is a, uh, a documentary uh, Oscar nominee. I, um, was, I felt really lucky I was able to catch this at some kind of special screening they did. Uh, not like in the city, it was at AMC Theaters. Um... It's this documentary uh, looking at this uh, this couple of uh, volcanologists. It almost sounds like I said Vulcan. <laughs> They're really big into Spock. They just love him, like you know, doing the thing with his fingers. Uh, you know, live long and prosper. <laughs> I just did Spock when he's dying. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really cheery tonight. Um, no, these volcanologists. Uh, Maurice and uh, Katia Kraft, and I'm probably mispronouncing her name now, but they're they were very much into volcanoes. Their whole lives revolved around investigating and filming themselves at these volcano sites. You know, like not when they were necessarily always like completely active, but when they were on the verge or right after they would erupt. And it's just such a it's such an engrossing movie where you feel so connected to 
what these two are going through uh, in their careers and also their lives. You get the sense that like Maurice was more of like the filmmaker of the two, while um, uh, the the lady of the of the two of them. Uh, um, and I'm, oh, I'm gonna look up her actual name. Ka- yeah, Katia Kraft. I was right. Katia Kraft um, was the one who is probably more just into being there at the sites, and it's it's just it the how it's presented. It's like a Werner Herzog movie, but a little with like the weirdness turned down a bit, and like the heart really turned up a lot more. Um, it's also helped by this slightly uncanny but really just just right narration from Miranda July she has this like kind of voice that quavers a little bit when she talks and it adds this extra kind of dimension the way that she that the filmmaker is describing how they went about their uh you know adventures and you know their highs and lows and you know, their disappointments. It's just such a remarkable movie. I, I was so taken with how it was presented and uh, how, you know, I want to know more about them. Or maybe I don't. Maybe actually this is just enough. Um, and and actually as a postscript, I think Herzog has a movie about these two coming out soon. So, <laughs> you know, people on volcanoes. Um, you know, and by the way, if you're wondering, yes, there is a moment where you see Maurice Kraft, like, you know, cook, you know, break it. He breaks an egg on the volcano and cooks it, (laughs) you know, and he says, I can usually make these a little better at home. (laughs) So that's fire of love. You can watch it. It's actually on Disney plus. Um, it's, it's from national geographic. So that's why it's there. Um, all right. Fire of love. All right. My number nine, The Northman. That's my number nine. And when I was talking about women talking and I was saying, you know, there's another movie that actually does a good job encapsulating a truly foreign belief system, moral code, ethical code, etc., etc. I was talking about The Northman. Because one of the things that I think is the greatest strength of The Northman is that Robert Eggers is the director, right? Robert Eggers is not afraid to create a movie that revolves around characters whose ways of thinking are very, like, alien to modern ways of thinking. Like, one of the best things about a period piece, I think, is it gives a modern audience a window into different cultures, different belief Mm. systems, and and the Northmen is not afraid to build a movie around people whose ethics and morals and behaviors are like very grotesque by modern sensibilities. Well, it's that, but also I think he embraces um, mythology. He embraces, you know, the power, well, to to get all Joseph Campbell, like the power of myth and matter of, and in fact, I believe that the myth that this is based on an actual myth that was also used as you know, and a lot of people commented, well, this seems a bit like Shakespearean or kind of like Hamlet. And that's because Shakespeare was borrowing from this myth for Hamlet. If it seems familiar, like 
that this king, you know, gets, you know, struck down by this, uh, you know, this other mem- this mem- other member marries the the king's wife. The son goes away and then comes back and seeks revenge. It's Hamlet. I will avenge you, father. But it's in the thing that I love about the film too. Again, yeah, the language is very authentic. That I think is pretty consistent. Also, falling from the witch and uh, the lighthouse. Um, but it's just the authenticity all around, like the immersion that he puts you in into this world. Um, that's what's so breathtaking. Like it's. Very much like you're almost like you're there with those people in, in those extremely primitive communities. And it, just like the the way that he emphasizes ritual, like the way, like because Alexander Skarsgård, he arrives back as a grown man to, you know, as he says, you know, I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fjornar, or whatever his name is. I almost called him Mjernir. <laughs> Catania's somewhere being, like correcting me on that. Um, he, it's, every time like he he keeps like killing people in the village and they, they're like these little like funerals that the king is holding. And it's just like, uh, Robert Eggers, he could skip over those, but he really commits as a storyteller to, showing what happens in these moments and it's not boring it's very interesting it's captivating it's it's kind of shocking actually this this was kind of a snub i think at the oscars at least at least in the technical categories like this why this didn't get like sound or or maybe or like uh or production design you know, even though you could say, well, maybe they just put up a bunch of sticks and, you know, for huts or something. The design of this movie is just spectacular. Yeah, the... And also, you know I'm not a big action person, but the action in this movie is incredible. Absolutely incredible. At least one of the action set pieces involves two naked men on a volcano. <laughs> in other words... Uh, the fire of love people would love that scene. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's just like the witch. You, I believe watching the Northman that Robert Eggers believes everything in this world. Yeah. And he has to, because if he doesn't believe it, the audience is going to like kind of chuckle and not really take it seriously. He takes it like so seriously. Like, I mean, it, you know, it's and what I like too is just also the acting is big enough to match that as well. Oh yeah, no. Did I, we talk about Nicole Kidman yet? I've had this thing where I've long I believe for the past several years that Nicole Kidman has kind of limited her range as an actress because she's gotten so much plastic surgery, just so much that she can't really move her face. And I thought. She's kind of limited to just playing cold, rich women we, like in Big Little Lies we, or The Undoing. We, we come to this place for plastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I thought she'd gotten so much plastic surgery that she'd really limited her capabilities as an actress. Because, again, 
I watched The Undoing. I watched Big Little Lies. And she was fine in those mo- in those shows because she was playing cold, rich women. But I was like, lady, you can't really move your face. And that's kind of a problem <laughs> for an actress. But she killed it in this movie. She yeah. was incredible. Yeah, I didn't really... I didn't notice, like, the plastic surgery part of it here. Maybe they did some extra makeup on her where it wasn't that noticeable. Um, but, yeah, she was – I thought she was terrific. I mean, I – you know, and I know, like, she's probably, like, the biggest star – along with Ethan Hawke, probably the biggest person in this that you recognize. Um, well, no, I, I'm sure the Bjork stands will come at me yeah. for saying that. But I still think she fit into what Robert Eggers wanted. Um, and, uh, yeah, and Ethan Hawke is great for his uh, moment minutes on screen. Uh, and Skarsgård was uh, terrific, too. Incredible. And I, I liked The Witch. The Witch is a good movie. I'm a fan of The Witch. But I wasn't quite as over the moon about The Witch as I feel like everyone else was. I kind of took the attitude of The Witch like, it's a good movie. I wasn't, like, blown away by it. This blew me away. I mean, I, I was pretty blown away by The Witch. Um, this might be slightly superior, but it, it's... It, I, I'll have to revisit both at some point. Because I, like, I think both could hold up differently mm-hmm. in some various ways. I mean, as we keep, you know, seeing Anya Taylor-Joy, like, going back to The Witch one day, it would be nice to kind of see her in that again. But... Uh, yeah. Oh, the other thing too. One last thing with the Northmen before we move on. I also love how trippy it gets. A few points like there's there's one scene where like Ethan Hawke takes his like young son before he's Alexander Skarsgård, and he takes him on kind of like a vision quest. Yeah. And doesn't Willem Dafoe pop up? Yeah. So good. <laughs> yeah. He happened to be visiting the set. They, you know, he just appeared like that. <laughs> One of these days, I'm gonna have to watch the lighthouse. Which you really should. It's so good. I... Like it. I think you would like it. I think you could look past the weirdness because it is a very uncanny movie. And I'm gonna let you make fun of me for this. I wouldn't see the lighthouse because I read in the reviews that. All the jokes are about farts, and I'm not into that kind of thing. It's not all about farts. They're, and the thing is, they're good. They're good farts. See, I almost went. I didn't even know how many farts were going to be in it. Maybe you would. See, you can make a good fart joke. It depends on like how unexpected it is, and the way it's presented in the movie. You're just like, whoa. That's a fart. So yeah, that's why I didn't I mean, go see the lighthouse. I was like, it's all fart jokes, and I'm not into that. It's not all fart jokes. There's also the scene where, uh, actually, Andrew and I now kind of do this because he's seen the movie. What? 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 They go, yeah. they have a what match off. Um, but yeah, the North the Northman. All right, so you did your number nine featuring so- Eric Northman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, number eight. So my number eight, Pearl. Uh, see, this didn't make my top ten, but I really like this movie. It is an honorable mention. I kind of give like X and Pearl a tie together. Yeah. Um, you so this is you like this more than X. It was really hard to pick between Pearl and X, but I went with Pearl. I think part of this is you know. I have a particular soft spot for movies about characters who are 
desperately needy and grasping and like hungry and obsessed and that's kind of like my thing i have that is my ultimate sweet spot as a viewer give me a story about someone who is so obsessed with something or so needy that they become totally crazy this is like my number one favorite thing to watch in movies so obviously i'm gonna love a movie like this yeah, and that's what, uh, yeah, Pearl is, uh, for those who don't know, last year, Ty West, uh, he, he put out this horror movie. Actually, it came out on my birthday. Uh, it was kind of cool. We saw that March 18th. Uh, we saw X, which is like this kind of slightly pastiche uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre type movie where this porn crew, you know, goes to this farmhouse. They're, they're shooting like a low budget movie or no budget movie, really. But like the like the the old couple who lives there, like the old woman doesn't see it kind of reawakens something in her to see, you know, all these people fucking right under her nose. And she, you know, starts offing people one by one. And it's uh, it's it's a really good horror movie. And also it emphasizes old age sex, which you don't get that much in movies. Oh. When we saw X, I said to you, the couple's gold. The married <laughs> couple in this movie is the ultimate couple's gold. It's such a great scene when, spoiler, you see them fuck in the movie. Because, like, it's a, another character is, like, hiding under the bed while these, like, ancient people are, like, somehow getting it up and, you know, getting all those folds. But the thing is, the old woman... Is also played by Mia Goth. In like, makeup. Yeah, she's, you know, and I think that was like a big secret. I think a lot of people didn't know that she was going to be in two roles. I didn't know. And then, yeah, me neither. Like until a, I, maybe like a day before I found it out. Um, But the thing was, because uh, of the pandemic, Ty West also like he had a lot of time on his hands and he wrote the prequel to this movie which is like the story of the old woman when she was young. Uh, and so you see Pearl in this movie is, you know, she's, you know, wanting to be a star. She wants to, you know, dance and perform, you know, in movies. You know, she goes to the local movie house all the time. Um, and yet, you know, she's, you know, lives with a very repressive mother. Um, I also really like the actress who played the mother in this yes. too. I wish I remembered her name now, and I don't. But she was really strong in this. Um, uh, actually, it's funny. This is actually probably also uh, it's it's adjacent, but this is also a World War One era movie. It is. <laughs> yeah, better than uh, Elk on the Western Front, I'd contend. Um, so yeah, this is this is a character study, Pearl. At the end of the day, yeah, but it also he it's a character study, and yet Ty West. Not in, in a different way, but also similar to, like, Robert Eggers with The Northman. He also creates an extremely vibrant, vivid representation of this world. And it's, like, kind of a technicolor, you know, vision of, like, the auroral backdrop. You know, it's a little bit of imagery connected with, like, The Wizard of Oz because there's a scarecrow. I'll leave you to watch the movie to see what happens with the scarecrow. Uh, and 
Yeah, and so, so I'm sorry, I cut you off. So yeah, it's a character study, and so when you love this movie, you don't you don't watch it necessarily for the bones of the plot. You watch it just to watch Mia Goth just go ham. Yeah, she's having she's increasingly becoming un, more unstable as the movie goes on, and and yet what's you know, and you see her, you know. She does off some people, but then there comes a point late in the movie where she delivers this monologue and maybe you've heard about it, but like you just have to see it for yourself because it's one of those things that feels like, okay, how long is this going to go on? Oh, it's still going. Oh, wow. Oh, and you look back and you realize, oh, she's like pouring her entire heart out and you, it's like, even though she's you know, the technic, you know, villain of the movie, you know, you almost feel, you feel bad for her. I love her. And I loved X too. So I did kind of debate with myself, which of these movies I would put on my list, but I went with Pearl. Cause I figured at the end of the day, Pearl is the best character in these two movies. So yes. I decided to pick the movie that was all about her. Yeah, a-, a Pearl's grown on me too. Like I, I really like it a lot. And best end credit scene yes. of the year. I, I was, you know, I, I'm, I. There weren't that many people in the theater when we saw it. I was laughing like a maniac <laughs> at those end credits. It's just incredible. So loved it. And what's your number eight? My number eight is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I might probably just ma- mismangled saying Guillermo del Toro. I don't know why I did that. Um, this one is, uh, also, by the way, this is nominated in, uh, for animated film. I, I think it's probably got the lock to win. Um, unless if somehow Disney really throws all the turning red money out there. Um, but this movie is just a real, a a work of passion and it's a, you know, a stop motion animated feature which, you know, we really don't get too many of those. And this one is, it, it takes the story, it takes the tale of Pinocchio. And I, I'm guessing in some ways, maybe he, Guillermo del Toro, decided to make a closer adaptation of the original story. Disney obviously took some liberties, to say the least. This one, it it's like, you know, some of the things that are going to happen because, you know, you can't help it. You know, Pinocchio made by, you know, lonely uh, old man. And, you know, then he, you know, goes off and gets into misadventures, eventually meets up again with his uh, kind of dad, Geppetto, in a, inside of a whale, as you do. But what's fa- what's great is because it's Del Toro, he, it's like he didn't have to do this, but he does, and it's great. He, like, injects a lot of, like, politics and it becomes this big commentary on fascism where it's set in like the times of Mussolini and Mussolini actually is a character in the movie briefly because what happens is Pinocchio gets roped in to you know perform in this theater group and be like uh you know because he could sing and dance I guess uh and he gets you know the the kind of Stromboli character that's in the original Pinocchio Here's voiced by uh, Christoph Waltz. There's a lot of great voice work too in the movie. I should like Christoph Waltz is a voice. Um, Kate Blanchett and Tilda Swinton voice kind of different versions of the Blue Fairy, even though it's not 
quite that in this movie. And it's just great, like, how it unfolds as far as it being not just about Pinocchio finding, you know, himself and, you know, is he going to be a real boy, quote unquote, but just that he's frankly a lot more of an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just kind of enjoyable how Guillermo del Toro and his collaborators present that. And Ron Perlman is like, uh, he he plays this uh, fascist uh, collaborator. Um, he he kind of forces all the boys to be in this Italian version of the, the Hitler Youth, and it. I'm not going to spoil too much of it. I would just say if you love like move, you know, animation, and you want to see something that is, it's something you could show your kids if you want to. But it's really, it's also something that will hit adults in a different way. You should check it out. It's it's a, it's probably one of his best films. Um, actually, not probably. It is one of his best films, and I was glad to see him bounce back a little bit from uh, Nightmare Alley, which we talked about in our podcast last year. <laughs> kind of a disappointment. So loved it. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Best animated. Well, the best animated film until arguably. I talk about the other movie that will be in our in my top ten, and it's probably in yours. All right, so what's your number? Is it number eight now or number seven? Number seven. Okay. This is a movie that was, I think, it unjustly bombed, and it's basically been totally forgotten, even though it came out like six months ago, and it's a great tragedy. My number seven movie is 3,000 Years of Longing. If there is fate, who can say... But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. I like it. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. So, what would you wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. Oh, yeah. This I I'm cl- I'm glad you're bringing this up. I like this movie a lot too. It's it's again another uh, honorable mention. Uh tell tell the people what 3000 Years of Longing is about well, cuz they should know. I said to you when we saw this, it's basically the before series, you know, like before sunrise, before sunset, before midnight spliced with this really inventive fantasy Mm. because the premise is Tilda Swinton plays this professor's giving a talk and she buys a bottle with a genie inside played by Idris Elba and the bulk of the movie is them bonding over bonding together in this hotel room as he's trying to get her to make wishes he's telling her about his previous history um and the other people he's been involved with. So it cuts between them talking to each other in the hotel room. And then as Idris Elba's telling the stories of the other people who had the lamp, we get these, again, like fantasy flashbacks. And I absolutely love this movie. I think the chemistry between Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba is insane. It's very good like they're together they they really play off each other so well and especially like yeah and the the relationship evolves in a way that's very surprising too yeah and the reason why i compared it to the 
to the before movies is 3,000 Years of Longing has a task with a very high degree of difficulty. It has to convince the viewer that these <coughs> characters are forming a deep and intense relationship over the space of hours. And you have to believe that. Like, for this movie to, for the ending of this movie to work, you have to believe that these characters are soulmates after a day, basically. Yeah. Well, the thing that we also, like, Matilda Swinton's character, she, her whole thing is myths, you yeah. know, and she's like an expert on all the, the mythologies in the world. You know, she'd probably see the Northmen and nitpick. <laughs> um, and because of that, it's like she, can't really see what's you know what is so special at first about what Idris Elba is telling her but eventually she gets it and that like kind of brings them closer together and once she makes her wish it kind of transforms both their lives and it yeah there's a lot of deep work especially once you get to that final third of the movie and you know how they're like what kind of unfolds between them once they're out of that hotel room. It's a, it's very, it's a lot more emotional than you expect. Although if you've been kind of following George Miller's career as a filmmaker, it makes sense that he had something like this in him because it's, you know, he's had like such a great way of presenting these visually audacious, you know, very bizarre you know, bits of comedy throughout his movies, but always there's this heart. You know, you think about in Mad Max Fury Road how insane some of that movie is presented, but at the core, you know, he gets the relationships right. And that's the thing in this movie. And it's not just Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. It's also Idris Elba in the flashbacks that he had yeah. with these other women who kind of transformed his idea about love and, you know, connectivity. Yeah, and that's, we've, I feel like we've consumed a lot of discourse about how, like, bland and sexless and, like, de-romanticized modern movies are. This movie is so hot. It just is so much, it's so weird to say this, but this movie is so much, like, horny energy. It very horny. He, it's he's so he, he, he took a bunch of Viagra before shooting this movie. And <laughs> we've also talked about how, I think Idris Elba is a really talented actor who unfortunately almost exclusively makes bad movies. <laughs> um, I'm not exclusively. I, he's had some he's had some bad luck. So I really like Idris Elba, but I don't like his agent. I don't like the person who's picking <laughs> his movies because but so seeing a movie where he can really shine, yeah. It's just such a joy. And this is another movie where the, like, fantasy stuff works just as well as the grounded relationship stuff. And yeah. I just love this movie. I cried at the end. It's a movie that's very sweet, but also very, like, melancholy at various times. Yeah, yeah, that's... It's very much a, a movie also about, you know, how you're going to live your life. How, what, you know, are you going to... When you're bonding with someone or you get this connection, as I mentioned, you know, what's going to happen if you have to then grapple with death? I think it's about, you know, this, the, this, this, these two people finding each other. And yeah, they have this like before sunrise type intense connection. 
but it's also eventually about you know are you gonna be able to let someone go yeah a little bit it's so densely packed thematically but it also works at a character level and even as yeah. i'm talking about it i'm You're like a little emotional. did i put this too low on my list should it have been higher than number seven well, maybe it's a great movie that unfortunately like it's very overlooked nine people saw when it came out in the theater yeah we me and the mac, mac guest star mac catania was like the third one to see it but i absolutely love this movie Three yeah. thousand years of longing good stuff yeah yeah go go check it out if, if you can or if you if you think you're into George Miller and want to see, you know, what he's doing between these Mad Max movies. Um, I already, we already talked about Glass Onion. That was my number seven. What's your number six? My number six is Marcel the Shell with Shoes That's my on. number six. You know, we didn't even talk about this beforehand. It's almost like we know each other. It's almost like we're <laughs> married or something. <laughs> Our our lists are going to diverge slightly in the next part, but maybe not much. We'll have to see. Um, yeah, this is what I was alluding to when I was talking about Pinocchio, and there was another animated movie that I might mention. And although it's, I'm actually curious what you think though about this because it's not Marcel the Shell with Shoes on is nominated in Best Animated Category. It's like I do, I can see that, but I also don't. You know what I mean? Because yeah. Because even though Marcel and uh, his, uh, is it his aunt or grandmother, voiced by Isabel Rossellini? Um, I thought it was his grandma. Yeah, his grandma. Yeah. like It's really like kind of a live action movie with like these animated characters. But I guess you can bend the rules a little bit. Um, Yeah, this this was a a marvelous... uh, Marcel the Shell is marvelous movies. Um. All right, so you've got the book, you've got a little bit of a raisin, which I really don't think you're going to finish, but you can go to town, go to town. Also, you have two drips of water. Look over here. You have two drips of water. You got an LED flashlight in case the power goes out. You just got to step on it like this. See? See how it's like, whoa. Sorry, my little stand right in front of it. Finally, this is the sparkler. What you do is you light this end on fire and then you step back. This can act as a flare, all right? What would I need? That's if you need a signal for help. And Dean's going to leave you his phone just in case. What? No, no. We'll see the flare. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, why don't we just put the colander over you now if you want? How's that? You must let me out of here. It, this is, uh, for the if you've seen the trailer, you think like, oh, this, is a, this looks like kind of an odd little movie. And it's basically about a, a little shell named Marcel who gets... He and his grandma are kind of like the last of their people, or so they think. And they're little shells that, you know, talk and they live in this house. And it it's a very touching, emotional movie that just makes you feel so good inside. And yet it goes so much further than you even expect that, like, it could have just been like this charming little movie for kids, you know, about like a talking seashell. But it ends up being like a commentary about like social media and how, you know, connect how we can connect in ways that actually make a positive difference. And, you know, that kind of reach into, you know, like actually opening yourself up to the rest of the world and how powerful that can be. The script walks a very fine line because it's very clever and very smart. 
but also feels grounded and realistic. Like it's smart without being show offy. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's very clever, but it's not like an Amy Sherman Palladino type of clever <laughs> or an Aaron Sorkin type of clever. No, it's disarming in its cleverness. If that makes sense, like it, it, it catches you so off guard when how funny this movie is, and it's very funny. Like it's like, and I mean, like I was hysterically laughing like multiple times in this movie, and yet you know, like another movie that we'll touch on later, you know, possibly near the top of our list. It's like you're laughing a lot, and then suddenly you find yourself crying. Yeah, this and I think too. I this was the one movie I think I cried more than you did. Yes, because I did cry during this movie, but I think you cried even more. Uh, it's just so where it goes eventually, and how like delicately the 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 filmmakers and Jenny Slate, who uh, she wrote co wrote the movie actually with her ex husband, which is I'd love to see the behind the scenes about this movie. Um, and she voices Marcel. Uh, Marcel's whole um, connection with uh, his grandmother is just so it, it really touches you and you don't almost you almost don't expect it because a lot of their interactions it almost is like this quirky almost seems like again it was based on like YouTube videos so these are almost like little sketches but it's not a sketch that feels so stretched out. That's the danger that could have happened with this movie is like, okay, this is overstaying. It's welcome. Maybe should get out of here. No, you want, you want to see where this goes. You want to see how is Leslie Stahl going to find her way into this story? (laughs) And yeah, it's like the best. I I actually made the joke on Letterboxd. This is like the most time you've gotten with 60 minutes in a movie since the insider. And this time (laughs) it's actually a heartwarming story, not about like cigarettes. Um, kind of like Pearl, this is primarily a character study, and that yeah. if Marcel <laughs> a, a lot a, great character, a lot less scarecrow sex in this one. <laughs> but really, like if if Marcel is not such an all time great character, the movie isn't going to work. But yeah, and Marcel really is. And I also remember too, like when we uh, we went to the film spotting, uh, the podcast had this. Uh, rap party live uh, show we went to a few weeks ago they played a a couple of clips from the movie and they had both funniest scene and just best scene of the year and yeah the scene they picked is best scene it's like the movie also isn't afraid to go into like poetic philosophical territory it almost near the end of the film it gets into like talking about the meaning of life. Yeah. You know, God, I'm almost, oh, I'm getting a little emotional just thinking about so it. So good. And Mar- Marcel's so cute. So cute. So that was our mutual number six. And what's your number five? My number five, this is another movie that I feel like really kind of came and went and didn't get its due um, praise. Armageddon Time. You know, this was in my top ten until maybe like a week or two ago. Like this was actually hanging on to being like number nine or number 10. Uh, and I still, I, I, I love this movie a lot. But uh, yeah, like it, this, uh, I, I feel, uh, yeah, this got overlooked. I, I almost expected in the, with the Oscars, you know, Anthony Hopkins, maybe kind of snubbed. Maybe they thought like we can only have like, 
one old man, <laughs> and they went with Judd Hirsch. So yeah, this is a really excellent coming of age movie. I would say that's like its principal yeah. purpose. It's about coming of age, and it's about the type of coming of age when you become old enough to realize that you start seeing like your family as flawed people and mm -hmm. you start understanding kind of the way the world works in like a macro sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, there have been a number of movies that did that this year. I mean, we, and we're probably, you know, spoilers, there are going to be at least a couple of movies coming up that we'll talk about that feature that too. But, um, but this one is special just because it, it, it's been, I'm sure it, uh, James Gray, the filmmaker, he he took a lot from his own life, and and also kind of tying into uh, current events. It's like the, he basically this kid, you know, he he's in this school in Queens. There's an incident that happens with him and this uh, black kid that he befriends, and he's put into this like private school, which is run by Fred Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like Fred and uh, his uh, the other woman just played by Jessica Chastain. It's such a great moment, but it's yeah, I, I like the yeah. It's exactly it's a it's a movie where you like a kid sees the world and he he's kind of seeing the world in a different light. Um, it's a I think it's a great film about understanding like what your What's going to be your role in this world? You know, what are you supposed to do in it? You're told to do, you know, be a certain way, you know, like, you know, and he, this poor kid, he, he just doesn't, it's like he, he's told to do one thing, he's told to do another thing, you know, he, he really bonds with his grandpa, but, you know, that that's not going to last too long, and it's also just, you know, how are you, who are you going to stand up for in this world? Yeah. And there's this element of class striving as well, that this kid and his family... They're Jewish. They're Jewish, so there's also this element of they're trying to kind of claw their way into middle-class respectability, and they're trying to ensure that their son basically gets treated like every other white kid. Yeah. In a way, it's it's definitely a companion to, well, the, the Fablemans, which is also a movie where... You know Spielberg and that is kind of deal. You know, looking back on his uh, young years and how he was also put into a very waspy, you know, Gentile world, and you know his parents were a lot different than the parents in Armageddon time. You know, certain like the scene that's also like stands out to me in Armageddon time is when you know Jeremy Strong. Uh, you know, get, becomes a little too strong with the kid. Yeah. It, he's, he's very abusive, the dad. And it's just a very, it's it's a scary world for this kid. And, you know, he, he kind of rebels and he's, you know, maybe going to run away with this friend that he's made. And yet, you know, it's like, even though they're Jewish, it's like, well, at least, you know, we're not this black kid, you know. And it's that kind of class and race uh, commentary is just, really sharp and and yet you know it's what i love too is that it's james gray knows what he's taking from i mentioned after the movie this reminded me a lot of uh the 400 blows uh the francois truffaut movie 
which is also about, you know, this adolescent who, you know, kind of, you know, realizes I can't really understand what my parents are up to anymore. I, you know, I'm going to kind of be a bit of a delinquent. And yet, even though The 400 Blows is a much greater movie, this one has over it just the real specificity of that time in New York. And also the fact of the commentary regarding, you know, it's 1980. So you have the end of the 70s, it's the beginning of Reagan. That title kind of comes into play feeling like, well, this is the end of something. And it's also like kind of like the beginning of the end. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what I like about this movie, too, and what's what's so good, I think, about, you know, the social commentary is this movie does a great job of showing you how, like, racist systems perpetuate themselves without any, like, malicious intent on the part of the day-to-day individuals. Anne Hathaway. Yeah, like, the characters in this movie don't wake up every day, twirl their evil mustaches, and say, like, man, I can't wait to be racist today. And you can see where they're coming from. And And I also like that they hate Reagan and they think of themselves as good liberals, but they're also thinking like, I can't have my kid go to a public school with the riffraff. Yeah. Well, when, when Anne Hathaway, the scene that I've thought about a lot since we saw the movie is like right after the, the kid gets uh, caught like with uh, his black friend and you know, that Anne Hathaway, his mom has to come get him out. You know, she put, she, you know, they leave the principal's office. Uh, they go into the stairwell. You know, she, you know, has this confrontation with him about what happened. And you see this moment where you real like, it's such a moment you don't get to, we need this more in movies, unintentional racism, where she tries to see, you know, she tries to say like, I don't care if he's like red or blonde, you know, blue or black, you know, all these things. No, you, you, you are still profiling this other kid, but in your mind, you think that you're, you're not doing it. And so many people try to rationalize and compartmentalize and think that they're doing the right thing, thinking about someone when they're still othering. Yeah. I loved this movie. And so I feel like it really got overlooked. Yeah. Overlooked. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like that happens a lot with James Gray. I don't know what it is. Like he, he also made my top 10 list, I think, a few years ago with Ad Astra. Um, I mean, I haven't seen all of his movies. I actually think he's gotten better, like, the older he gets. Because, you know, he did uh, The Lost City of Z, you know, which we I really liked. He did uh, then Ad Astra, which I'll, I think, again, was it's kind of like Apocalypse Now in space. It's so good. And then now you have this, which... I think maybe it's because people thought, well, we already have this nostalgic movie. We can't have too many nostalgic movies. And it's the kind of like, you know, movie for adults that I don't know, maybe years ago would have done better. I don't know what happened. It's just a shame that this, you know, because, yeah, and the acting is great across the board, too. What's your number five? My number five is uh, a movie. Well, Banshees of Inisherin. This is my number one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry it's kind of anticlimactic to say it so quickly. Your number five, my number one. Yeah, should we hold off on talking about this till we get to okay. number one then? Yeah, then we'll okay. hold off because it's my number one. It's your number five, Banshee's Sharon. 
my number four is The Fableman. Which is my number two. All right. So do you want to talk about it now? No, we'll save it for your number two. All right. What's your number four? <laughs> well, all right. My number four is not on your list, so this is a good time to talk about it. It's Tar. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real time, making the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. Yes, I thought this movie was very good, but too long. So I liked it a lot, but it's not like well, top ten worthy. Too. Yeah, I, I think the the extraordinary thing about this movie for me, I mean, there there are a number of things that are just really incredible for me. You know, and we talked a little bit about Kate Blanchett's performance, but but I, it, it's worth talking a little bit more about what she does so convincingly in this movie, which is. Uh, I think Scorsese talked a little bit about this because uh, he he's uh, champion the movie too. You're seeing the movie from her point. You're seeing not the movie. You're seeing the story from her point of view, pretty much. Like I think maybe there's one or two little moments that you're not seeing her, but on the whole, she's in practically every scene of the movie, and. That's a tough thing to do, but to make it where you it, it, you you don't know what's going to happen next, and yet you kind of do. You know that this woman's going to face her downfall. You know, Kate Blanchett again. She's Lydia Tarr, if that indeed is her name. <laughs> um, and she's this world-renowned composer, and uh, is preparing, uh, you know, to do a new uh, you know concert with Mahler in Germany. And it's a it's a remarkable film for me that it takes its time to get where it's going. But you but that's I I liked how much time it was taking to get us into her world because you're so immersed into what she's doing every day, how she's insulated herself into a world that she can control, that she you know, early on in the movie, she is seen like giving this long, you know, very adulatory type of interview with like a New Yorker guy on the stage or she's just, you know, it's like a one of those. It's almost like inside the actor's studio or something. And, you know, there's that. And there are these scenes where you just see her kind of talking with like colleagues and mentors. And I know you I know I get what you mean, that it is long. But it's the kind of long that I like because it feels earned for you know in part because the writing is so intelligent and kind of it, it in a way this is also the version of women talking that I would have wanted, but like better because in the in that the characters are talking in an articulate, very you know world knowing sense 
but it makes a lot more sense in the world they're in. Yeah, this script is so smart. Very, very smart, and it's just, and yet what you almost wonder, like for then you suddenly see scenes play out, and you're like, oh, ooh, this is actually getting awkward, and it's not, but it's not that for every scene. Like you see something happen, like when Lydia Tarr. Uh, comes in to do this sort of kind of seminar in Juilliard, um, which is one of the highlights of the movie. And you and again, it's from her point of view. She, you don't think she doesn't think she's in the wrong in this moment. And in a sense, like you watch that, and I don't know how other people feel about that scene. I'm with her in that scene. Yeah. You know, I'm totally on her side in the kind of argument she has with this like belligerent student. Yeah, when I watched it, I thought on the substance she was right and the student was wrong, but I also thought she spoke to the student in a way that like teachers can't speak to their students. That yeah. No, no, that she it you also while I say that I'm on her side, yeah. I also understand why that's almost like a setup that whole scene that pays off once all of her scandals are coming out where she's you know becoming like a tiktok meme <laughs> and they've like taken the video of her berating that student and it's like ooh, yeah that, that looks bad yeah i mean she's right on the merits but you just can't treat people the way she treats people and no I mean, she and, and ultimately it. that's that ends up being her downfall though is that like she sees what her she has like such a rigor to her, you know, in her intellect, but it's like her, her heart is like this black, like husk. Well, I like too, that this movie is very nuanced and you totally understand how Lydia Tarr became the person she is. You yes. totally understand. Also, I like the fact that the movie is deliberately kind of ambiguous about her Me Too problems and doesn't make her a full-fledged, like, Harvey Weinstein type yeah. figure. Yeah, it's, you, it leaves it open enough that you can kind of speculate, okay, this maybe this wasn't physical abuse. It was maybe more kind of, kind of psychological or mental abuse. Like, she had such control over, like, these women that you... You know, again, and we throw you hear this word thrown out on social media with grooming, and you know, is this what a groomer is? Well, eh, kind of, maybe, but but then there's the whole aspect of also her assistant, uh, played by uh, Nomi Merlant, who I love that that storyline too, like yeah. because you understand like why she would be by Lydia Tarr's side for all this time, and they also this is. This is good ambiguity where they don't come right out and say it, but you get the sense maybe she also had something with Lydia Tarr too and is kind of expecting maybe something career-wise that she might not get. What I love about this too and what felt what really rang true to me is, first of all, what brings Lydia Tarr down is not one thing. It's a series of incidents that... Each one in isolation, like, wouldn't be that big a deal. It's the cumulative total of them. But the other thing I really like is what brings her down is not the people around her having a moral reckoning with the type of person she is. No. But rather 
feeling personal, the assistant feeling personally betrayed when Lydia stabs her in the back and doesn't promote her. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's still, you get the sense that even though like Lydia Tarr is going to be out on her ass and no longer in this world, it doesn't mean that someone like her couldn't rise to the ranks in this world again. Like they haven't really dealt with the problem of someone like her. They just got rid of her. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I've always said when we've talked about like scandals in Hollywood, I've always said nobody comes for the celebrities until they're not marketable anymore. Yeah. Like nobody comes for these people until their golden touch goes away. Yeah. Like, or, or if you're Army Hammer, that's the exception where it's just so crazy. It's just <laughs> like, okay, get this guy out of here. So I thought this movie had a really good understanding of how abusive power works and how abusive power gets punished or not punished. Yeah. I like this movie a lot. Yeah. And it's also just, you know, really great cinema watching her conduct uh, the orchestra. And, you know, in a sense, it's like maybe that's also a good metaphor you know, as far as like her kind of conducting her life, you know, and what, you know, how much time she's using. She mentions time. That also kind of becomes a kind of metaphor. There's just a lot of depth in this movie. And again, I understand why you found it too long. I think... I, I hope that maybe one day you'll revisit it because maybe when you do, it won't feel as long. Because like, I think because I've seen it now twice. And the second time, I still felt the length a little bit, but it went by quicker. Like it's one of those kind of long movies where it's it is a full, you know, two hours, 30 something minutes. It's not three hours, though. Man, the people listening to this are going to want to kick me when I say, like, I like Tar. It's a good movie. It's too long. And then when they hear what my number three movie of the year is, they're going to be like, what are you talking about, lady? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Well, now that we can move on to that, yeah, so let's get into your number. Are, you're moving on to number three? Yes. All right. Because we weren't going to talk about the table things. Can I, can I lead this off? Yeah. <laughs> my number three movie of the year is RRR. Yeah. Do you know? Can you remind our audience what do those th those three R's stand for? No, I'm no. I don't know what they stand for. No, don't put me on the spot. Um. I'm sorry. No, it's just the movie spends like a half hour before the title even comes on. This is like... Rebellion is one of them, I think. Yeah, something like Revolution. Probably one of those, yeah. Uh, this is like... it. This waits lo as long to show the title of the movie as Drive My Car. Well, I just adored this movie. I appreciated its commitment to maximalist spectacle. I appreciated that this movie was just like a battering ram of feelings. <laughs> I think that's like 
That should go on the poster. <laughs> Battering Ram of Feelings. Just, Add another R for Ram. You know, like, I just really like over-the-top entertainment. And I said to you once that I feel like the older I get, I need, like, stronger and stronger hits of spectacle. Because I'm of the age now where, like, watched a lot of things by now not as many as you but i know so i need well not as many k-dramas <laughs> I, I guess for me <laughs> that's another episode altogether i need strong stuff and i will say this is a this is a strong tonic this is like a spiked smoothie with every kind of alcohol and every kind of fruit that you want you also throw in some tigers in there and um yeah, like those who don't know, because this is a bit. This movie was huge with certain moviegoers. Some people probably have no idea what we're talking about, though. Like, so for those who are wondering, what what is this what we're talking about? Again, this is from Tollywood, um, kind of like Bollywood, India. It's a three-hour epic, and in you know India, that's kind of devagur to have movies that long. Um, about these uh, two. Uh, men who come from very different walks of life. Uh, one is kind of like this military man who's um, very much like a part of like the, you know, kind of like the system of like British colonialism in the early part of the 20th century. This other guy is like kind of like a man of the, the natives in like the woods. Am I getting this right? I'm trying to remember. Yes. And, they have like the most amazing meeting that you will ever see characters have in a movie. Like it's like it involves, let me, I'll just say it involves a bridge. It involves like arms, like clasping together. <laughs> and, you know, I'm almost surprised that at one point they didn't have the shot from predator between Arnold and Carl Weathers. Dylan, you son of a bitch clasp. Um, but yeah, this movie is full of like joyous masculine energy. That's what I would call it. It's like a masculine cream pie. And I know, wait, cr not cream pie like that. No, 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 no. Uh, not cream pie. Not no, like a, like an actual, like a, a different kind of pie. No, I, <laughs> maybe I'll edit that. No, I won't. I'm going to keep it in. The audience should know what I meant by, all right, let me let me change cake to cake. All right, not pie. It's like a seven layer cake of mandem. Yes, it's a seven. <laughs> well, Don't forget, this podcast is for adult listeners. <laughs> well, it's just I loved that. You're right. It's got it is a seven layer cake of mandem because even though there are romances in the movie, I think like the bromance is really the central story. Yeah. Between these two. Yeah. Between these two men who like, there is a deception, you know, you, you wonder like, when's the shoe going to drop? Because this one character is not saying who they really are for like half the movie. Um, and it culminates actually in, you know, a big reveal that involves one of the most insane fight action set pieces you will ever see. And I was like, so enthralled in that sequence. I was just laughing, applauding. That was, it, it was, it was like the, involved like many CGI animals. And yet the animals were 
you know, take note, James Cameron, that's how you do spectacle <laughs> involving like CGI. Um, my one, the reason why, like, again, I like this movie a lot. It didn't crack my top 10. There were, there were like maybe 10 minutes that I thought could have been trimmed or lost in the middle. You thought it was a little long. Like a little long. Star. Yeah, honestly, I did. It's, and I don't know, maybe I was like, it was maybe a long day when we saw it. We actually saw this with another movie that <laughs> mothering Sunday. Oh, that was awful. Yeah. It was great to finally watch the taste of our mouths. Of our, our. Um, but of course it's also just what I love about certain Bollywood movies when they are really firing on cylinders. And this is one of the better ones I've seen is just, how it can shift into being a different style of movie and it still works. I mean, the Natu Natu scene is really, I think, the one musical set piece of the movie, right? There are, are others. There's a few others. Remember, there's... Is there another song I'm forgetting? There are a few songs. Well, there's a whipping song. Oh, right. <laughs> there's all... How did I forget that? Also, there's a song when they first meet each other. There's like a buddy song. Oh, right. Yeah. So there's like a, they have a song to commemorate their friendship. So they have a, like a we're buddies now song. Then after the betrayal, when one of the characters is getting whipped, they have like the whipping song. I think why I don't remember those songs as well is just because they're, you know, those are, those are songs that don't involve as much choreography. Like the Natu Natu number is also where the two of them, it also involves them trying to impress like the the ladies of like, you know, the British colonials and pissing off the men. And that like just creates such a joyous dynamic. Yeah, I just, I loved everything about this movie. What's so funny is we've heard online about how the screenings for this movie get really wild. We saw it in a virtually empty theater. There were like two other people besides us. Yeah, we went at a time of day where I I don't know if it was just because of, you know, we went on like a, an off time or I think we saw it before it really took off. Yeah. I think it just started. And I don't even remember why we went to see it. I think maybe we had heard from a couple of... Patrick Williams. Yeah, Patrick H. Williams. Thank it's you. Patrick H. Williams. He, he definitely is... Yeah, he was going a little bit nuts on it. And I'm I'm really glad I saw this when I did. I, I think it was a... Th th this is a filmmaker who I really want to see what he'll do next. Because I think he's just so full of passion. He's just... He, he has a sincerity to what he's presenting to the audience that even though you could, you, you could say it's cheesy, but it's such good cheese. Yeah. I mentioned uh, to make another food metaphor, it's a gigantic block of cheese. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's a cheese of friendship. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm so over movies that think they're too cool for feeling. So like, I'm just so over that. Yeah. I mean, again, I think this could arguably almost go, so far into having like a overwhelming of feelings, but maybe there's no such thing. Yeah, RRR, R -R -R. it was amazing. Good stuff. All right, my number three is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. A movie I haven't even seen, so take no. the stage. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, 
this is nominated in uh, the documentary category. Um, and as much as I love Fire of Love, I suspect this could win in Best Documentary, which would make it a super rarity in that um, Laura, Laura Poitras is the director. She previously won an Oscar for Citizen Four. And usually documentary filmmakers don't win a second time. So if she gets it, it would be nearly incredible. I had heard a lot about this movie just as a... And, and also I, I was really big on Citizen Four. I actually like this way more than Citizen Four. And look, in, again, a lot of it sometimes retrospect. I mean, at the time Citizen Four came out, I think Edward Snowden was still... Uh, I don't know why. I think he's just kind of lost some of his, uh, for lack of a better word, luster <laughs> as a public figure. Um, now he's kind of ensconced in Russia for so long. But in this one, for those, so this story is about a, a woman named Nan Golden. She, um, for many years, is best renowned as a photographer. Um, she's, you know, had shows all over the world. Uh, she's, you know, primarily been, you know, a photographer of, you know, people in, in places, uh, you know, kind of marginalized people like gay communities, uh, you know, very sexually graphic uh, photography, sometimes involving herself. She staged a lot of like these kind of tableaus, uh, you know, kind of like, not quite Robert Maplethorpe, but kind of in the ballpark. Um and what happened, though, in the past several years, she was uh, addicted to opioids. And, you know, luckily she finally got off of them. But she took up uh, the cause of going after uh, the Sackler uh, family and all the that whole kind of cabal of, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical industry that, you know, really perpetuated the opioid crisis in this country and you know i'm not saying the sacklers were the only cause but they were a primary moving agent of you know tr you know saying oh no no you know you're not going to get hooked on you know opioids easier to help you and people were getting hooked and taking way too much and you know dying and you know and meanwhile the sacklers were you know kind of connecting back into nan golden's world as well had have their they had their names on all these museums. And so the documentary is kind of cutting back and forth between her struggle along with uh, these activist groups to, you know, make the Sacklers accountable to, you know, real, you know, get them prosecuted possibly. And to, at the least to get their names off of these fucking museums. And then it also cuts from that to her life story, her life as a, uh, a creator and you know her kind of crossover into the world of the New York City underground and I just the the intensity of her storytelling you know she uses you know we see a lot of photographs that she took over the years she's kind of narrating it it's almost it almost it sounds like it shouldn't work like it's too boring it almost it's literally like you're watching a slideshow for parts of the movie, like you're, and and yet, it's a self-conscious device because you're hearing like the slideshow clicker at times, and yet it's a really 
like in impactful story about you know what it means to really be there for a community what it means to put yourself out and expose yourself in a way you know and Nan golden was trying to you know again in modern times in the past several years expose the sacklers throughout her career she's also been kind of exposing herself exposing literal bodies of the people she's been photographing and I just I, I love this movie. I love the the storytelling. I love the depth of feeling. I found her struggle with the you know her own addictions, the men in her life really powerful. Um, and eventually, you see what happens as well with the Sacklers finally being held to task in some way. They weren't really you know it, it wasn't really enough what they had to pay ultimately. I mean, I'm sure you know some of the details. Yeah. And uh yeah, I'm I'm feel lucky I got to see this. I wish uh this had been more widely released. Uh you know, it's in a couple of theaters. It's supposed to go to HBO Max eventually uh cuz it is partially an HBO movie. I don't know if it had been playing around here like if it was playing in AMC theater, do you think you would have gone to see it? Yeah, I would have seen it. Yeah. I heard it was good. Yeah, it's so good. Um, so that's my number three. All right, we're getting down to the line here. What's your number two? Well, my number two, I know through process of elimination is your number one. Okay, interesting. So oh. my number yeah. two movie of the year is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yes. Which and that, is your number one. That is my number one film of the year. This was my number one for most of the year. Like in Yeah. When we saw it, I was like, this is my number one. But Banshee's snuck in there at the end. So. Yeah. And I we've and I know we've talked a lot about, you know, again, you can listen to our full episode about everything everywhere. Um I would just say revisiting it again. I rewatched it mm, a couple months ago. Um I actually watched it with uh, my dad uh and uh and uh yeah it, it was uh it was quite an interesting thing to see it through his point of view uh, he actually gave me a perspective i hadn't thought about he said it reminded him of the wizard of oz yeah, i, I, I kind of can see that yeah in a way it's like by the end of it she kind of realizes there's no place like home <laughs> <laughs> there's no place like the irs office <laughs> but it's like what a completely exuberant, joyful, and yet such an emotionally harrowing movie that, like, addresses, you know, like, again, it's an everything bagel of a movie. It is. It's just... It, it makes... It's, like, the only film that I think could win Best Picture in Academy Awards history that involves a dildo fight <laughs> and a Ratatouille parody. yeah. This it embraces <laughs> why it's so in, uh, sensational a film is because it 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 embraces its absurdity and yet it also embraces that these are real people in this world. Yeah, I think that it's such a perfect mix of being fantastical yet grounded. Yeah, yeah, it, it's in a, in a line of movies like. Maybe a little bit of Scott Pilgrim uh, or even like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. 
Yeah, I thought of Eternal Sunshine a lot when we watched it. Because, yeah, it's... The plot is very fantastical, but the relationships are totally authentic. Yeah, And, you know, and there was someone who I follow on Facebook who made the point that, like, there's the possibility that this could all be inside Evelyn's head. (laughs) And I don't think it is, but it's a thought. Um, But, yeah. I, I just adore the movie. I'm probably going to even watch it again. Maybe I'll watch it with audio commentary. You um, know it's the type of movie you can go back to over and over again, too. Like, there are certain movies that you have to be in a specific frame of mind to sit through. <laughs> Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, that's an all-the-time movie. Yeah. You're I mean, always... Like, yeah, like, after this podcast, I could put it on and I'd, like, you know, be in ecstasy. Um, yeah. That's another big, too. You'll laugh and you'll cry. Yeah, you'll you'll have feelings as uh, you know the characters are rocks and so good. Oh, oh. yeah, and the cry singing and about the it. mother rock moving along with her, you know, following her little rock daughter. You know, ne- stop trying to tear jerk me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, I know. I said I like being manipulated earlier. You're taking it too far. <laughs> the little balloon is going across the room and up. Stop it. <laughs> you know what you're doing. All right. Let's move on. Now it's time to talk about my number two movie. And my number four movie, The Fablemans. Yes. Or as your dad calls it, Meet the Fablemans. I want you to make a camping trip movie. Uh, you can learn how the editing machine works while you do this. It'll make your mom feel better. Yeah. That last night when she danced in the headlights, that would be to it tomorrow, okay? Um, tomorrow's when we start shooting. <laughs> Escape to nowhere. We're shooting all weekend. Shooting Dad, next weekend. We got like forty guys coming to be in the movie. I'll I'll work on all the camping trips up on Monday. I'm asking you to do this now for your mom. Yeah, She's... and I said that I will, just not tomorrow. Don't be selfish. She just lost her mother. That's more important than your hobby. Dad, can you stop calling it a hobby? It'll cheer her up watching this. It's something we can her do. Her mom to, just to... died. It's, it's, how is that going to cheer her up? Because you made it for her. Does he still call it that when you talk to him? I don't know. He still, last time I talked to him, I told you he was on his bizarre rant about how Judd Hart or she's going to steal the Oscar. Yeah, I hope not. Oh, that would be... No, I... Kihi Kwan's got it in the bag. Yeah. I think the problem for Judd Hirsch in that category is I think he's a bit polarizing. I think people really like him in that role or they don't. So, I like him. But... I like him a lot, but I can see why people... I can see why people think it takes them out of the movie because he's definitely... He's, Everyone else in that movie feels like a real person in that film, even though it, you, you know watching it, it's a movie. It's like Judd Hirsch and David Lynch as John Ford are like the times where you feel like, oh, I'm watching a movie. <laughs> Do you feel like... I kind of feel like the marketing of this movie kind of let it down a little bit because I feel like the yeah. marketing made it seem like a more simplistic, more treacly movie than it is. Yes. Whereas actually, I think this movie is very sophisticated and emotionally complex. I, again, there's there's a moment I almost thought this would be my number one of the year. Like, I was really, 
wrestling with it. And then ultimately, again, rewatching EEAAO, you know, that was okay. No, this is really it. But yeah, no, this is a, a no, this is very, yeah, it's a lot darker than you expect going into it. Like there are stretches of this where it's almost like Steven Spielberg's, you know, his home movies become the Zabruder film. <laughs> it's like he has a back into the left moment. And it's no, it is very sophisticated because he's. You know, you would think, you know, because I think at first I had the same expectation a lot of people did. Like, oh, okay, we're getting, yeah, we're getting his life story uh, as a as a young person. But it also shows how it was a more complex journey for him. And it was very much about, like, well, what Judd Hirsch says, you know, art, family, it will tear you in two. And it's kind of about how he you know, had this love for film that was ignited from, you know, want, you know, it, it, it came out of his mother kind of presenting him with, okay, you can grapple with this fear you have, you know, because you watched this really upsetting experience of this train. And now you're trying to, you keep recreating it, you know, with this train set we bought you, why don't you film it? And that way you don't have to keep crashing the trains. You can just have this for yourself. And that idea of using film, you know, cre- the filmmaking process, it's not just, it, it can be, yeah, a thing where you recreate, like, the, the, the movies you love seeing, like Westerns, war movies. But it's also, it can be a vehicle for reckoning with the the the, the very personal pain that you're going through in the moment. You know, and sometimes you find those moments unexpectedly and sometimes like when he, you know, becomes like the photographer, you know, the cinematographer for, you know, the school, you know, beach outgoing, you know, the, the party, he, it's like he, he's filming things that maybe he didn't intend or he didn't intend them. And it becomes like, it's not just about him becoming you know, who he is, it's about what the filmmaking process can be. Yeah, and I think it's very... In a very, like, troubling way, possibly. Yeah, because I think the the trailer for the movie sells it as, oh, the magic of the movies. The Fablemans presents the creative drive as the drive to manage anxiety and the desire to control the people around you. And the scene in the movie, this is not, I'm not going to say this is the best scene in the movie. I'm not saying it's the best, but the scene that shocked me the most in a good way was the scene you're referring to at the end when he films his senior class on a field trip and this bully who's been sadistically teasing him. And anti-Semite. Yeah, sees how young Spielberg has framed him, you know, as an Adonis figure. And he has a complete, like, nervous breakdown about it. He can't stand the way his image has been manipulated. And he can't understand it. He can't understand why someone that he abused this way uses the power of film to make him look so good and then he feels like a failure because he can't the real him can't live up to the celluloid version of him yeah and like it's 
in a sense, it's yeah, it's Spielberg getting back at his bully. But then, like the the scene that it's so remarkable between the two of them because they, it's like you think is this guy suddenly going to beat you know beat up uh, you know Sammy uh, the the Spielberg character, and they don't. They have like they almost kind of bond over it in a weird way, <laughs> like because he. Then this other like bully comes in and the, the the main bully like tells him to get out and it yeah, it's a very complex moment because um yeah, and the young Sammy, like he is still unsure about what he was doing. You know, he almost and he kind of tells the bully in the moment, like, you know, I maybe I just thought it would work best for my movie. And that's knowing what I know about Spielberg as a filmmaker, I think that's a very it's a knowing personal admission that ends up if you know his career actually does follow in a number of ways in the movies he made. Like Jaws, for example, he went through hell making that movie and basically did whatever he had to do to get the shot that would work best for the movie. So in a sense, it's not just, you know, oh yeah, this is where he learned his love for that. No, no, it's like, on a very, very granular, yeah, psychological, philosophical level, it's like not just about what he is for him. It's like what can it be for any of us? I thought this movie was such a fresh and creative take on the artistic drive because that's very well trod ground. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I've consumed a lot of media about the act of creation. So the core, like, this is what being an artist means to me is something I've seen a lot of works wrestle with, but I thought this was such a fresh take on it. I was, it would have been so easy to make it cliched, but it was really Mm -hmm. unique. And this, it's a great like family drama. Yes, it's a great marital a, drama. Oh god! It's also another great coming of age drama. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of different threads of drama working in you know within each other. I sus- I have to suspect like you know again Spielberg it's his story, but Tony Kushner, you know, also deserves a lot of credit because he did. He's he act in a weird way. It just occurs to me. He kind of did with Spielberg's life what he did with Angels in America. Because Angels in America is also kind of like that, where you have these different threads that are working through. And that's obviously a much more epic scale, you know, th- that deals with a lot more fantasy. And it's not exactly the same thing. But in a sense, he's also like able to weave together, yeah, the what's both the kind of emotional family journey the personal filmmaking journey and yeah, it's like, you know, he, the father is like such a, like a important, you know, really impactful character in his way. The mother, Oh God, the, the scene where he shows her the, the, the footage from the trip. Probably my favorite scene of the year. Incredible. Incredible. I've thought about also like, I just repeatedly think about like the, when she hits him. Yeah. That's like, that might be one of my favorite just hits ever in a movie. It feels, and it feels so, re- and I know it's like, you know, Spielberg might say, well, that was the one time my mom hit me. But, but, but 
but it feels like the kind of thing that can happen in any family. Like, yeah. you know, it, I hope I'm not getting too personal here for a second, but like, I, my mom has told, has mentioned over like the years, like when my brother would sometimes do things that would, you know, get him into trouble, like, you know, like kids do, but sometimes to a great extent. And like, it would, my mom would almost get to the point where it's like, she would almost, you know, her hand would almost be up to like, you know, hit him, but she would hold herself back. And I almost picture if she did had ever hit him, if it would have been like that, where it's almost like, it's like dark, but it's also really comical. Yeah. That's what this movie, it's like, it has a darkness to it. There's an edge. And yet it's also very warm and funny. And I don't think this edge would have been there earlier. Maybe it would have been, but not to this extent in Spielberg's in his career. I'm glad he made it at this point in his trajectory. Well, the way I've also thought about this, too, is, you know, he's at the stage of his life and career where people, you know, will write the memoir. You know, they'll do like the and basically Tony Kushner is his biographer. But except instead of writing a book, you know, it's like, no, fuck it. I'm going to make a movie. And it's like and yet it's so much deeper than that, because, again, he's exploring it through this fictionalized family and yeah and got all oh, the ending so good yeah look at the horizon <laughs> um and uh yeah i would you know highest recommendation we didn't really talk about it um spielberg gang director for I, the oscars i think so i think so it, I wonder if it's going to be a repeat like last year where – because I think the Daniels could have a shot. I'm going to hold my judgment until both the SAG Awards and the Directors Guild. But I wonder if this could be a repeat of last year where like Jane Campion, like she the only award that Power of the Dog got was for her for Best Director. If Fableman's the one award that will get is Spielberg for Director – but it won't get picture because we, I think you use this phrase. It doesn't have enough heat. Yeah. <laughs> I like how you said, you meant you, you're speaking in like Hollywood agent speak. <laughs> doesn't have enough juice. doesn't have enough heat, baby. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be snapping my fingers as I was saying that. Why do you mock me? <laughs> I'm not trying to be like you. I'm being like generic Hollywood agent guy. Which is why you're not a Hollywood agent, because you can't snap your fingers. Sorry. I I, can't I wasn't help. trying to mock you. I'm I sorry. I can't help it. My skin is so soft that I literally can't snap my fingers. We all have our burdens in life. <laughs> all, right. all right. Let's talk about the number Banshees of Inisherin, your number five movie. My number one. What the hell's going on with you, me feckin' brother? He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been dull. The other night, two hours, you spent talking to me about the things you found in your little donkey shite that day. Well, it wasn't me little donkey shite. It was me pony shite, which shows how much you were listening. Mm. Now, I said to you when we saw this, I have never related to a character in a movie more in my life than the Colin Farrell character. Because you always let the donkey into our apartment. <laughs> You know, especially when, you know, you're feeling sad. <laughs> but no, I, 
I relate in the same way. Like I am the kind of person who is, I think more dull than most people would expect. I'm like just someone who doesn't really have that interesting a life. Yeah. I self-identify as a boring person first and foremost. I think that's like one of the key things about me is I'm a boring person. But do you think though, like, well, that brings up a question, like, because again, this movie, those don't know it's, I describe it as being a little bit like if John Ford made an episode of Seinfeld (laughs) or Curb. Although I think that makes it seem like the characters are maybe meaner or more self-involved than a Seinfeld, like Seinfeld and Curb characters are. But maybe maybe an extent, because it's very much about like the pettiness of like personal grievances, which is what I usually associate with. That and I could picture like a character like a George or Elaine be like, wait, why don't they want to be friends with me anymore? They just don't want to be friends. Why not be friends with me? They want to be friends. Oh, I don't know. And you know, couple that with beautiful Irish landscapes. But what I want to ask, do you think Colin Farrell's character, um, I'm not even gonna Podrick. Podrick, thank you. <laughs> I was almost gonna call him Padres. Uh, do you think he sees himself as boring? No, I don't think so. And I think one of the primary kind of tensions in this movie is what makes a good life? What makes a life worth living? And there are certain people out there, um, I would consider myself one of these people, that their standard for a good life is not grand, let's say. Colin Farrell is happy to, you know work enough to get by, hang out with his friend. I'm going to use a different word then. Not boring. He's a basic bitch. And I am a basic bitch. (laughs) But don't, you're you're not a bitch. I also, (laughs) though, I also have the take that a lot of people who think they're not basic bitches are even more basic than the people who know they are. Yeah. And yet, you know, there's also, I mean, I relate to the Colin Farrell character. There's also part of me that, like, a little part of me also relates to the Brendan Gleeson character, too, because there's also a part of me that sometimes thinks like, well, maybe I should just put aside, you know, having this commitment to this person. I'll just stick or you know, I'll just do my art. I'll do like my writing. I'll do something so that I can feel like I'm creatively inspired. Um, but it, that's where like the that's where my connection ends. Because clearly, you know, Brendan Gleeson, it's also, this movie's also very much about death as well. And, you know, what it means if you're going to be facing death, you know, and again, it also is important that Brendan Gleeson's character is the older one of these two. Because I think Podrick, maybe he doesn't really see Brendan Gleeson's dilemma because, you know, he's the younger guy. He still has more time and, you know... Sometimes you only have so much time in this in this world. Yeah, so it's basically a hilarious existential crisis. And this yeah. movie does such a good job of layering comedy on top of yeah. the tragedy. Yeah, I mentioned Seinfeld and I mentioned Curb. I guess maybe that's another way of going around, like, because uh, I know Martin McDonough has said he's been he, a big influence of Samuel Beckett. So in a sense, I think this is like, a uh, 
is like Samuel Beckett with a bit more violence. <laughs> and uh, it's, and it go. It, it, what I like too is just, you have like four central characters. They're all so richly developed and you, you know who everyone is to everybody. And it, um, and there's also just, I also like that there's sometimes with a movie, you get also a little bit of mystery about it. And it's not like a kind of mystery where you're like, you know, you're, you're left frustrated. It's like a satisfying slight mystery. And for me, that's like the, the old woman. Like, and after the movie, I was kind of talking with you about like what she might represent. Like, is she like the figure of death? Is he, is she just like a sage? You know, who is she? And it's, it adds like an air of like almost myth, mythicality to it, to <laughs> use a Rhett and Link phrase. Did you also, I don't remember if I said this the day we saw it. This movie also kind of reminds me of a serious man, which I'm like a huge, huge, huge fan of. A little bit. What? How so? Can you remind me? Well, just watching the lead character spiral from the accumulation of minor inconveniences that spiral into basically a complete collapse. Yeah. That, no, that is... that Actually, yeah, no, that, that is a great way to put it. It's, you know, and in that case, that was kind of like the book of Job. You know, you have a character who has all these slights and he wonders, like, is God, like, testing me? In a sense, like, Podrick is also kind of being tested and it's because he just doesn't, he can't get through his head, like, why is this person turning on me? And in life, I think a lot of us have that happen. In a way, I think this is probably more, even though I love Serious Man, like, I I think maybe this is even more relatable because we all have these moments in our lives where, you know, we have friendships with people. And sometimes, you know, friendships just kind of, you drift apart. You And it might not be because you had one thing happen with this person. What makes this stand out, though, of course, is because these characters all live on, and it's important to remember, they live on this kind of little island. Yeah. And we haven't even talked, too, about, you know, the, the um, that there's like a, a potential political side of it. Yeah, but we don't know things about like Irish history. Come <laughs> well, on. I, I mean, I know that there were the troubles, yeah. and well, maybe we'll just leave it at that. I mean, you hear in the movie certain things like there's some type of thing happening on the mainland. Am I going to go to that? You know, and that's. But I think that's important too. It's like this character; these characters have chosen to live here. You know. It, that's also contributing to maybe their existential crisis. It's like, do you know, because also Carrie Condon is like, maybe we should leave. And eventually she does. And that also messes with him too, is all that. And, oh God, and the ending is just so good. I love the ending. I told you the ending reminded me of the ending of Phantom Thread. Because I feel like the two characters in this movie at the end have reached the kind of understanding mm -hmm. that the two characters have reached in Phantom Thread because obviously the friendship has been very tortured throughout the entire thing, culminating in the Colin Farrell character saying, well, I'm just going to murder you. Yes. Yeah, and that, that sequence is just so powerful because he basically tells him, I'm going to, 
you know, you can, if you're in your house or you're not in your house, I'm going to do this. And it, yeah, it finally shakes Brendan Gleeson out of, uh, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting his name, but it doesn't matter. It's yeah. like Colum or something. Yeah, they're very, very Irish names. Um, yeah, he, he finally got shaken out of it, of his, of what he's been going through. Cause he finally realized, oh wait, I actually don't want to die. Yeah. I actually want to live. And, you know, that's some people maybe need that in their lives. I don't know. Like some people might have that as well. Maybe not us, but other people have maybe sometimes get stuck in this stupor. Um, of course, a lot of people don't cut off their own fingers, <laughs> uh, which is something that happens. I think it's just we're making this sound a lot more serious, but it is. And yet it's just so funny. Yeah. It's such a funny movie. Like you're constantly laughing. Martin McDonough has such a great control of language. And you know, he's been working with these performers for years. And you can just tell like he has like such a good connection with them all. And it yeah, it's I think it could be Colin Farrell's best performance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's I'm trying to think like what I mean, maybe the lobster, but that's like a different kind of performance. This feels a lot more well-rounded. So, yeah, I think it's a strong choice for film of the year. Again, it's not my movie of the year quite, but I, I, and I also think it's probably Mark McDonough's best film too. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, and I've loved a lot of his movies, but this was uh, clearly a, a he's reached a a kind of confidence in himself as a storyteller as like just writing great characters sometimes in the movie yeah this the story is like a very like pitch black comic escalation of you know a situation you know like a serious man like a much more torturous episode of curb <laughs> that's kind of spiraling out of control um and uh yeah it's just a, a brilliantly done movie and what's also brilliant, too, one last thing, is just how it doesn't feel the need to ever go bigger than it is. It's just perfectly fine being this little character study that, that yeah, it's, it's, I think it's going to last. It's a long-lasting movie. So, those are our movies. And uh, we're glad that you were listening to us for all this. Uh, if, please let us know what you was on your list. If you agree, disagree with our choices. Uh, you know, we, I, I feel like I, you know, we, we saw a lot of movies this year. I, you know, I end up seeing more than Corey, but we both saw a lot. Um, you know, uh, so if there was something we were missing, please let us know. We're on Twitter at the wages of, at wages of cinema. We're also on Instagram. Um, and uh, we will come back soon with a new episode and much sooner than we've had. I know we keep taking breaks, but we have uh, new content for you coming soon. I mean, some of that's just because of Hollywood itself. Um, and uh, one last, I mean, do you think this was a good year for movies? I'm a little mixed. I think it was good enough. Yeah, that's what I would say. <laughs> good enough. There were the highlights of the year. Um, and we, again, we gone, we went through them. Uh, there were some lulls as well, you know, but 
It's what it is. It's a good way to put it. It's good enough. Good enough diploma. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, we will be back soon. Until next time, I'm Jack. And I am Trash Pandagory. And the wages of cinema is my year year of dicks. (laughs) (laughs) I connect. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.